we have this idea, oh, this is like religion coming back and they're trying to erect a theocracy. And, and I'd actually say, no, the contrary is true. Uh, in a way, the use of religious symbols by the populist right is a symbol or even a harbinger of secularization of these Christian symbols. Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. This episode is part one of a double episode on Christianity and right-wing populism. We hear a lot about it in the media and it's easy to get the impression that the majority of right-wing populists are devout Christians. We interviewed a colleague of mine at Oxford University, Dr Tobias Kramer, who has spent years researching right-wing populism to see whether this impression was true or not. If you follow the news, then this episode may have some surprising revelations for you about what right-wing populists really mean by Christianity and what kind of people are most likely to be right-wing populists. I hope you enjoy the episode. So can I, can I start by asking the very first question? Please do. Just simply, uh, what is national populism? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me. It's really great to be uh, on the podcast. And yes, that is the, the big question, isn't it? Because it is one of these essentially contested concepts and obviously doesn't help that uh, it's also used so much in politics, basically as a, what we call in German, a Kampfbegriff, like a very politicized idea that we usually think about demagoguery and uh, opportunism and we think about populism. But when we think about populism in more academic terms, it's actually, again, very contested term, but there's more and more agreement that it essentially boils down, when we talk about just populism, I'll get to right-wing populism in a minute, but just populism essentially boils down to this juxtaposition between the pure people and the corrupted elite. Basically, this binary worldview uh, that on the one hand, you have the, the, the us, the good, the pure and homogeneous people. These are the good guys. Uh, and then they are threatened by the corrupted liberal elite. And it's quite a, uh, a stark, also a normative distinction between the, the good um, and, and the bad in a way. And that's, that's populism. And in a way, people say we call that a thin ideology uh, because just this dichotomy alone, you can attach that to all sorts of different other ideologies. Well, it so makes me can... think of the French Revolution. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you can have left-wing populism. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one of my, my uh, big things. I mean, populism, if we just talk about populism, you could apply that label many academics do, um, both to Donald Trump and to Bernie Sanders, yeah. um, both to Nigel Farage and to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That makes it difficult. (laughs) Yes, that makes it difficult. But that's the populism side. And in a way that also says this is not really, doesn't really come with a value judgment. It's just describing that this is an important part in that. And basically the idea behind that is very much of a, what we call an identitarian idea of democracy, that there is some sort of general will of the people and the people are homogeneous uh, and they have an idea of what they want. And uh, it should be translated. There's a clear will and that's discernible. And you can have a, a clear leader who, who understands that and puts that into place. So it's a bit anti-pluralist, mm-hmm. but in some ways it's actually quite essentially democratic. It's just mm-hmm. uh, not, not very liberal, uh, but more, more democratic. But when we then come to right-wing populism, and this is where it's interesting, this dichotomy basically turns into a triangular worldview. 
because if you have right-wing populism, you have the, the good, the pure and homogeneous us, the mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. and then they are threatened not by one other, but by two others. On the one hand, you have the internal other, and that's the corrupted liberal elite. Um, and then you have the external other, and this is where it gets interesting how you then define the external other. You, like Traditionally, it's been defined primarily in racial terms, etc., etc. But what is interesting now, and this is, I guess, where we come a bit to, towards religion already, uh, is that we have seen a shift in recent years uh, that the external other is now more and more defined in cultural or civilizational terms and explicitly as the Islamic other. Um, but yes, basically, this triangular relationship is a good way to understand right-wing populism. And in a way, left-wing populism just says this binary two-point two um, distinction. It's only within a particular nation or a particular political entity, right? Left-wing yeah. populism, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it, it can also be, like, more global. Uh, but yes, they don't, they don't have the, the external other, so they don't, it's not a triangle, it's a dichotomy. Yeah, so it's just the popular people. Would it be the case that left-wing populism tends not to be nationalist but tends to be more ideological in a general sense that there are there's a values clash but not necessarily a nation's clash yes and no, i mean like then we come into nationalism and we can get uh, all sorts of of, of other uh, problems but yes they are not nativist this is what we'd usually say so nativism meaning that uh, you say only the people who are born or who are traditionally in a, in a specific nation are part of that nation and it excludes others who are perceived as not native uh, in, like in, in, in quotation marks. Uh, and this is basically yeah. what right-wing populism, so right-wing populism in a way combines populism on the one hand with nativism on the yeah. other hand, and left-wing populism doesn't have that. But it's not just left-wing populism. I mean, you, like some people have called people like Emmanuel Macron a centrist populist uh, because he also he also like in his first campaign in two thousand seventeen was also saying there's the 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 pure people. Um, and then there are the corrupted elites, and we kind of have to overcome the institutions, the liberal institutions, uh, and set something better up. So populism, in a way, can attach itself to all sorts of ideologies. But the most common that we usually see is either very left-wing um, or right-wing populism when it comes together with nativism. Toby, is it a, a core constituent of populism then that it frames a liberal elite? That, that's a category which is essential to populism, is the conceptualization of, of a liberal elite. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a corrupted elite. Um, and when I say a liberal elite, uh, it's not necessarily political, politically liberal, even though that is often the case. Um, but it's basically what populism does. It challenges our idea of liberal democracy because we usually tend to think liberal and democracy really goes well together, right? Like liberal democracy sounds good. This is what, what we all like. Um, but in a way, if you think of it as a political scientist, there's actually some tension in it uh, because mm. in many ways, democracy is very classically the will of the majority, rule of the majority, whereas liberalism mm. in many ways is about the protection of individual rights and also the protection of minority rights. Mm. So in some ways, there's a, there's a tension between the two. Uh, and what populists say is that our liberal democracies are too liberal and not um, democratic enough, and that this is what they would argue, that um, our democracies 
only focus on uh, minority rights, but not enough on the will of the majority. Um, whereas many liberals will say, uh, well, populists are too illiberal. They just go for the rule of the majority, uh, even if that's at, at the expense of uh, individual or minority rights. And basically, the whole attempt of a liberal democracy is to find a balance between them. But I think it's quite important to, in a way, recognize that populism is actually not, because you often see it as like this anti-democratic bit, but populism in and of itself uh, is actually what um, Karl Mutter called it, a pathological normalcy of democracy. Basically meaning it, it takes quite mainstream views of democracy and then is a bit more radical about them. But it's, it's actually inherently democratic, but it is very illiberal. And I think understanding that helps us a lot to think about what populism actually is, that it doesn't it is not necessarily all of the bad things that you hear about it in the news, even though it can be. Uh, but from a political science point of view, this is how we usually conceptualize it. Okay, so that, that's a really helpful sort of backdrop. But your research actually is about the connection between populism and religion mm -hmm. uh, more broadly. And that's also what this podcast is interesting. So I don't know quite how we transition to that. But... Where does Christianity come into this? <laughs> yeah, where does where religion come into this? Where does this political battle <laughs> um, and mess and war? Yeah, yeah. so basically, um, and that's the, the interesting thing. So as I just said, and this is, might be a good way to think about it, if you think about right-wing populism in this triangular worldview, with, on the one hand, you have the good and pure people, uh, and then these two others, the internal other, the liberal elite, and then the external other is like that through their... Uh, cultural otherness threatens the identity of the pure people. And this is a really interesting development over the last 20 years or so. This external other is no longer primarily defined in racial terms, mm -hmm. but now increasingly in religious terms in most Western democracies. Is, are you sure that's not a mask for racial things? Racial is a, you know... It comes together. Okay. Um, but it's, it's really interesting that the rhetoric has sh shifted. It can, I'm very open to discussing whether that's a mask, uh, but what we basically see in many ways is that, say 20 years ago, in Germany we would have said, oh, the Turks, mm. or in uh, England people would have said, oh, the Pakistanis, mm. or in France people would have said, oh, the Maghrebiens, uh, and now all of a sudden we all say, oh, the Muslims, Yeah. right? So there is this, like, discourse shift, and it is very interesting, it's, it's, this, it's also othering, so I think the mechanism behind it is very, very similar. But we see a shift from nationalist towards civilizational. Uh, Roger Rubaka is, like, has famously written on that, that we are seeing this shift from, from nationalism towards civilizationism. Um, and there are a whole lot of reasons for that. Well, I guess what that's pointing to is the fact that you're seeing similar kinds of movements with similar kinds of values arising in every different nation of, say, Western civilization, for example, and they have a lot in common. They're not against each other as you as they would be if they were purely nationalist. Is that kind of the point? It's, it's part of the point. I think, uh, and I don't want to get too deeply into that, but like, there's a lot of literature about why do we have this whole right-wing populism at the moment and also this like whole nationalism. And in some ways, it's, a, it's some sort of white identity politics, really. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of discussion about that, that it's a result in many ways of a crisis of identity among many large parts of uh, 
the majority population in Western countries as a result of things like globalization, immigration, and also the erosion of traditional identities. Uh, because traditionally you'd have uh, class as one important identity, or you'd have religion as another important identity, or your regional identity. And all of these identities have somewhat, have somewhat been eroded over the last 50 years. They are less relevant for individuals when they define themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in many ways, there's a lot of literature at the moment coming out that is saying we shift to a new social cleavage in our societies where the divide is no longer about religion or economics. It's not the class, uh, the class struggle or the, uh, the culture wars. But we are coming to um, basically an identity cleavage that is about how in the face of this erosion of traditional identity, are we going to define identity going forward? And then you, on the one hand, have a, a cosmopolitan approach to that, that says like, oh, we don't need collective identity in a way, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. we are citizens mm -hmm. of no, like of anywhere. Mm -hmm. We are like, this is like the great liberal idea of um, these traditional identities or these collective identities nobody needs. But then you also have a counter reaction, a communitarian reaction um, that says, no, hold on, there is a, a, a certain desire or demand for some sort of collective identity. And that, and that, that demand is then taken uh, on or tried to be filled by ripening populists. But what is interesting is that ripening populists then try to fill that with their own form of right-wing identity politics. They try to provide an identity. And in this context is when they then, on the one hand, come in with, with nationalism, Mm -hmm. uh, but also with civilizationism, because they, basically what you want to do is like the most abstract thing so you can gather the most votes okay. as possible. So you're, you're sort of saying there's, there's an identity vacuum yeah. formed by the current world, and in these populists you have, they're, they're taking in, okay, we're going to fill our need for identity with nationalism and with religion and with a few other bits and pieces as yeah. well is that yes uh yes i mean like the religion bit is interesting okay um because in a way um that's that's more comes in in opposition to the other so um they will say for instance um we we, we are we defend the christian west okay. that is part of the identity um but i've done a lot of research like a, a lot of uh field work so i've for my uh, PhD and my research project, I talked to about almost 150 right-wing populist leader, mainstream party politicians, and and other faith leaders, um, and basically try and figure out what right-wing populists actually mean when they talk about yeah. Christian identity. So, right? thinking, do they care if you're Catholic or Protestant, or they're Baptist or Anglican? Like, do these things matter, or is it just sort of a conglomerate Christianity? Yeah. So, in this is where it's interesting. This is where the triangle comes back, in, right? Yeah. Because in a way, right-wing populists bring in religion primarily by defining the external other as religious. So they would say, we have the pure people, and the pure people are threatened by the Islamic other. And it is only given this negative definition, religious definition of the other, that Christianity comes in as an analogous cultural identifier of the us. But what that is, is not necessarily a return of religiosity to, uh, to politics or far-right politics, but in a way it's almost a dissociation of belief from belonging, from religion as a faith, from, uh, from religion as a cultural identifier. So it's, it's really about um, Christianism uh, against Islam. 
Um, and as I said, you, I could see that in my own interviews because I would always ask one of the questions I'd ask everybody is what, what does Christian, you talk about Christian identity, what does Christian identity actually mean to you? Yeah. And it was really striking that when I asked that question to mainstream party politicians or clergy, they would all start talking about uh, theology, like the Trinity, the resurrection, um, all of these things. Quite um, right, quite right one, <laughs> one may say. Um, when I asked the same question to right-wing populists, though, they would start talking about um, architecture, history, culture, um, and, and, music. and music, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's like a much more cultural identity. It's like belonging much more than believing. And one thing that was really striking was that literally all of them, like almost all of them, uh, would also start talking about Islam in their definition of Christianity. So they would say, we are Christian because we have Sundays off on Fridays. We are Christian because we have cathedrals in our towns and not mosques. Don't necessarily go to the cathedral, but but that matters. It's there. Yeah, it's there. And, so, um, and then the, what they're opposed to is the building of a mosque in their village. Yeah. Is that, that's and they defend right. the Christian West yeah. against Islam. Yeah. But then they would also be quite open about saying, like, of course we are like, we are, we are atheists. A lot of them would say very openly, <laughs> like, I'm I'm an atheist. Uh, I don't I don't believe in like any of this like crazy stuff. Um, but I'm a but I'm a I'm a Christian atheist. Like our Christian heritage matters. Um, and in a way, it's like it's 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 really interesting because they use these Christian symbols, um, but dissociate them to to a large extent from Christian values, beliefs, and institutions, mm -hmm. and often do that quite explicitly. Um, and in some ways, and they'll be very honest about that if you, if you talk to many of them, uh, and in some ways quite interesting because we have this idea, oh, this is like, I don't know, the handmaid's tale, it's like uh, religion coming back and they're trying to erect a theocracy. And, and I'd actually say, no, the contrary is true. Uh, in a way, the use of religious symbols by the populist right is a symbol or even a harbinger of secularization of these Christian symbols. Uh, because our societies are sufficiently secularized that these symbols are almost detached from Christian values, beliefs, and institutions. The, the church, in a way, doesn't have the same monopoly about defining what Christianity is that it used to. In a way, it liberates, in some ways, opens up these symbols for politicians to uh, reinterpret and politicize in their own ways. I was just going to say, you're, you know, you're really kind of making explicit so much that I've been sensing but not really reflecting on through the prism of what people call Western values or the revival of the West as a category, as a cultural mm -hmm. category that is usually framed as being about somehow a protection of a Christian heritage or civilization. Yeah. There's a, a really excellent long form piece by the historian of science, Peter Harrison, Australian historian of science who, who writes very critically about the concept of Western values, namely that it's actually extremely young as a concept, mm. that it's not really anything to do with what we, you know, theologians might call the kerygma, the original proclamation of the gospel. It's to do with a particular matrix, uh, highly historically contingent matrix that comes about through all kinds of different influences and which has become a platform for something which is, of course, deeply contrary to the original impulse of the Christian kerygma, which is namely a kind of almost a transcendence of culture altogether as a relevant category for assessing human beings. You know, that there is something that it is to be human that is inconceivably more fundamental 
than anything to do with their culture. And so much in the early kerygma is really about that. It's a, mm. it's a challenge of other ways of, of categorizing human beings. And yet in a bizarre way in our, our time, the language of, Christian, of Western values has become hitched to Christianity in a way that is doing Christianity itself no favors. So you, you, you've really helpfully brought, brought that out into the open by pointing out that precisely that separation between what I'm calling Western values and core Christian claims is itself a symptom of secularization. It's nothing to do with a revival of Christian um, faith. It's much more to do with the particular conditions under which Christian faith is disintegrating in, in modernity. Yeah. I wonder if I could ask you off the back of that, how how central in your in your research, how central is Christianity in fact to these people? Is it genuinely, is it a disingenuous use of Christian categories? Or is there a real sense that, that they think they are Christian and they are defending Christianity? I think it's a mix. And it's and I, I I'm always very careful uh, to say like I mean like especially as a political scientist I think that's more up to theologian to say what is true religion and what is not so I I would not uh, I would not tell any of them uh, that they are or aren't Christian um, what I did find interesting was that a lot of them are very open and saying oh no we are like they would self-identify as atheists but say we are cultural Christians or um, say like it's it's I have like always think of a couple of quotes uh, in the back of my mind. I had one politician who was saying like, of, of, of course, religion is going to be important in future politics, but it will be in relation to Islam. And um, when we try to define us against Islam, well, then you can't avoid Christianity because that's that's part of our her heritage. But it's it's something cultural. They said that very explicitly. It's not about believing. So I think this reinterpretation uh, of Christianity as a, almost like as, so we, there's a lot of words thrown around at the moment in the literature of like trying to make the distinction between Christianity as a faith and then some say Christianism or um, uh, Christendom that is really about this like political concept that is really detached from beliefs, uh, values, institutions. And a lot of them are very open about that. Some will say like, oh no, and I think there are some very serious Christians in these movements as well, but they would also very openly tell me that they are a minority. Um, and you actually, and what is interesting, I think this is where we, we get a bit to uh, some of the crux. It's because it's a, because it's an ex negativo, like um, use of, of... Defined by what it's against. Yeah. yeah, it's what it's against. You can actually replace in this rhetoric Christianity with a whole lot of other things. So a lot of right-wing populist movements will say, we are the real defenders of, the, of uh, the Christian West, but we are also the real defenders of secularism, right? And the, the separation of church and state against medieval Islam and religion. So you'll have people like uh, the, the Rassemblement National in France, where Marine Le Pen is very open about, we are the real defenders of laïcité, of a very strict separation of church and state, and we ensure that there's no space in the public for religion of any sort. Um, you even have some like Gerd Wilders in the Netherlands who say we are the real defenders of gay rights um, and, 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 and Western liberal values against Islam because Islam is so medieval and religious and, and outdated. You have some that say we are the real defenders of Jews because Islam is against Jews. Um, you will have some uh, who are saying we are um, the, the, like there's a quite a strong neo-pagan 
part in many of these movements who actually say Christianity is also one of those like uh, like this this Jewish sects from the Middle East and religion of the weak uh, that has nothing to do with like real. It's a very Nietzschean view. That sounds quite Nietzschean. I was going to yeah. say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what what you're saying um, seems to me to contradict a lot of what one finds if one reads some of the media coming about, say, America, for example. Yeah. I mean, the general impression that I have, and I think most of the people I know have about America, is that the right-wing populist is fueled by the most devout religious people in America, that there's some sort of connection between going to church every week, reading your Bible you know, every day, praying every day, and supporting policies that want to keep all of the immigrants out of America, mm-hmm. for example, or denying climate change, those kinds of things. So is, is that a misperception, would you say? So I think it's really important here to um, see that there is still a difference between the US and Europe. Yes. Um, so in Europe, it's this distinction is very clear and very open. You actually see it even in voting behavior. So you see in the parties that are very open about that. Uh, I mean, publicly, Najah Farage said that he's irreligious. Uh, most of the right and populist uh, leaders will say they're atheists very publicly. Not a problem at all. And you see it in voting behavior. We actually see in Europe what some people call a religious vaccination effect against voting uh, for uh, right and populist movements. For instance, in Germany, the AFD does on average a about double as well amongst irreligious voters than they do about among Protestants and Catholics. And you see similar developments, say, in France or Italy, where things like church attendance are strong predictors against voting right-wing populist parties. Now, statistically, that is very different in the US, of course, because Trump did so extremely well uh, among white evangelicals. He did best, uh, I think, any Republican candidate ever, he'd got 83% roughly um, in both elections. So doing extremely well. Of, being, of white evangelicals. Of white evangelicals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so in some ways, we can really see the Christian right uh, very much supporting the populist right. But what a bit of my argument is here is actually that we have to start to understand that the, ro- the right is not a homogeneous movement. We understand that a lot of people in academic circles are very good in understanding that the left is not a homogeneous like lot and that there's a difference if you are green or if you're socialist or if you're a Trotskyist or if you're a communist. There's loads and loads of understanding about that. But if you're right wing, we put them all in the same bucket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we are basically seeing is the rise. We have the traditional religious rise, and we also had that in Europe. And we also have the rise of a new populist, secular, identitarian right. And this popular, secular, identitarian right is much less interested in Christianity. This is really the ex negativo uh, against Islam. And in Europe, we see a clear separation between the two of them. And you will see that Christian voters tend to vote more Christian Democratic or traditional conservative parties, um, whereas more identitarian voters, more secular voters would vote for uh, the populist right. What we see in the US is a bit of an alliance between the two. But what is interesting is if you look, for instance, yes, Trump was super popular in the general election. But if you look at the primaries in 2016 and 15, when he came uh, along, you can see that Trump uh, did best among those Republican voters who never attend church. Okay, so it's only only as they're losing their ability to vote for a a conservative Christian figure that they then moved to Trump. Yeah, so this is what happened in 2016. So in in a way, we could see quite a clear, and if you think about people like Steve Bannon, again, 
much more similar to the European fold in saying um, this is about the clash of civilization. And it is, it's not this universalist idea, but it's very much, and he will say that very openly, it's an anti-universalist idea. It's a very Carl Schmittian view of um, uh, mm. you can only define identity against the other. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the new, the alt-right in America. And that is really where the early base for Trump came from. Mm -hmm. But what we see so afterwards is really a new allegiance of the traditional Christian right with Trump. But that is true. That was only after he was he won the primaries. And a lot of people were saying it was a transactional bargain. And it was, and I think initially that was true. There was like a, a lack of other, other alternatives. What we will have to recognize, though, in many ways, is that um, since then, a lot of white evangelicals in particular, uh, and the Christian actors of the Christian right more broadly, really have started to embrace Trump. Mm -hmm. So this is not any more of a lack of alternatives. This is now a clear embrace. But I think it's important to recognize that initially the Trump campaign came from elsewhere. Um, and the question is, are we really seeing the, the return of the Christian right in power uh, and a return of religiosity to American politics? Or are we not rather seeing, to some extent, the secularization of what used to be the Christian right? Because one really interesting thing is that we now have a new concept uh, emerging. There's a lot of debate in the U.S., of cultural evangelicalism, uh, which basically means I mean, we know cultural Catholicism or cultural Judaism of people who don't practice, don't believe, but say culturally I'm Jewish or culturally I'm Catholic. Uh, and historically, you couldn't have that with evangelicalism, really, theologically. Oh, yeah, didn't like Jesus and Jerome Hart. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. But now you actually, if you ask in surveys, like there was a survey just a few months ago um, where they were saying, oh, there were actually a lot of people adopting the label evangelical. Yeah. Um, and then you ask them, oh, why have you become an evangelical? And, and then they say, because I, tr I support Trump. Oh, no. So it became this, <laughs> it became wow. this like political thing of, and, and you will find a lot of evangelicals now who say, I'm evangelical, but I never go to church. Um, That's really very weird yeah. for somebody like me who grew up evangelical, where the message was, you're not a Christian unless you go to church. Yeah. You can't be an evangelical. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really depressing. So I'm, I'm interested. It's very in... significant, though, right? It's very it's... significant yeah. that, to, that the public sphere understands this. Yeah. I know this is, sorry, that's like a PR point, but this is when I came across that point in something that you said in, in the interview with you, Toby, that's online. Yeah. I was amazed because you would never gather that from the media yeah. you know the presentation yeah. of the evangelical demographic that supports trump is that these are people who show up at church every sunday holding placards that say god hates gays or whatever yeah um the idea that this is this is, has migrated into a cultural space and out of the church buildings as it were altogether is hugely significant for the perception of these movements yeah and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about sort of the, the reception of Jesus and his words and example, because on one reading, he's the one, you know, the good Samaritan, the outsider, you know, the one who talks to the woman at the well is breaking down the other. On the other side, he is kind of a populist in, mm -hmm. in the way that you've talked about where the, the, you know, the poor, the, the, the majority are sort of, there's no condemnation, but he, he's, got pretty harsh words for the cultural elite. That's so, a very interesting point. I never thought yeah. about that before, but Jesus' Jesus's sort of support base, as it were, comes rather from the popular mm -hmm. people than from the establishment. Yeah. And so is that, is that 
translated into the modern era as a sign for these populists that they're on the right side because they're on Jesus' side, as it were. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting. I haven't thought about Jesus as a populist before, but I think you're absolutely right because he goes like against the the institutions and for for the people in a way and, and, and criticizes the hypocrisy of the elites. Yeah. We think about the Pharisees. And you could see, um, you know, his march on Jerusalem, you know, yeah. the, the triumphal entry, which we'll be celebrating this Sunday. Yes. Uh, is is really, you know, sort of, Part of what leads the crucifixion mm -hmm. and, and yeah. the sort of populist threat that he yeah. represents. I think that's really interesting. I think, I mean, like, I haven't haven't thought about that before, but I think it's probably also interesting that I haven't thought about that before because I've never come across that in right-wing populist rhetoric. Oh, interesting. Um, so, I, I... Well, if they're not reading the Bible because they don't yeah. go to church. You know? I mean, what? so sometimes, like, I would occasionally have, but it's quite interesting theology, what I, I occasionally would have encountered was uh, things like when when uh, Jesus says, love thy neighbor, right-wing populists will say, well, he said, love thy neighbor but like Syrians are like 2,000 kilometers away uh, and, and, and that your neighbor is geographically um, defined yeah I've come across that yeah. your neighbor really You're should kidding. be defined as the person you in your own say that? yeah 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 <laughs> you, you oh, I, I've that. read that I've got my yeah. have they actually on. read it <laughs> I've, I've read that in texts by because well, you know my research is on policies surrounding immigration and of course that that's where the thing really gets sharpened is is my neighbor the immigrant who's knocking on my door because they're a refugee or something else. And I've seen it in writing a few times. No, they're not, they're not my neighbor. They're not the person Jesus called me to love because they're, they're too far away. They're not in my neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. So you get, you get that. And it gets absolutely amazing to me. Yeah. <laughs> but, that, but that's the interesting thing. And Sorry, I'm it, having a moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's the thing. Like, I mean, the I, reason I'm having a moment is because in that actual text, well, at least in one of the Samaritan, he is literally targeting that way of thinking about what a neighbor is. I mean, so <laughs> I, I listen, sorry, this sounds like a digression, but it's totally relevant. Sir David Spiegelhalter, the statistician, was on Desert Island Discs a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about the meaning of numbers, basically. And at some point, he said something that has been ringing in my head ever since. He said, if you torture them for long enough the data the the numbers will tell you anything yeah and i thought it's time someone said that about the bible because it's not only the case that that's not in the bible but the opposite is in the bible yeah it's just point. amazing yeah it's amazing so it really underlines your point, Toby, that this is about secularization. This is actually about a separation of a cultural movement from its religious sources. Mm. A total distancing, you know, to the point of a, of a sheer illiteracy in the fundamental narratives of faith. And I think what is really interesting in building on that is there's a lot of really, like, statistics, because I initially thought it was really interesting that all these right-wing populists started referencing Christian symbols exactly at a moment in Europe where um, Christianity is becoming a minority religion, right? Uh, so, but we can actually see in many ways, and there are people like Olivier Roy who have written about that, um, who's a, a sociologist of religion, that there is a, a negative correlation between religious affiliation and levels of religiosity and uh, people saying that uh, the, the West is Christian or that their country has a Christian identity. So you can see in, in Germany, as church affiliation and religiosity goes down, more and more people say that Germany is a Christian country. 
Really? So the, yeah, they are negatively correlated. I mean, again, there's I don't know whether there's any causality, but it's really interesting that as as we see this like growing level of secularization, the the rhetoric about Christian heritage rises. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.